Yeah, I've had a strangely busy week training four days this week. I was supposed to be mentoring today, so I've no time to practice and I'm slightly nervous about tomorrow's course. So it's going to be an interesting evening when I sit up all night going through Angular 14 times until I know it, but it's all good. Which version of Angular? The only one that matters. I have lost track of the versions. What What's it up to now? Is it like 27? <laughs> I think it's 10 or 11. Yeah, I think the only, the only difference is between one and two. So if it's after two, it doesn't matter. I'll be the library formerly known as Angular JS to give it its full title. Henceforth known as Angular. Yes. And I don't feel like I know it as well as I should. So I'm just waiting for the students tomorrow to ask me a question about something and for me to just be totally lost, which might be my imposter syndrome or it could be just that I'm unprepared. We, we can take our picks. <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I have actually just thought of a new section improv okay. here and it's maybe just when i'm on the show um it could be my little niche but i'd have to think of a jingle to come ahead of it but okay i would almost like to do a podcast recommendation a podcast recommendation yeah because okay. obviously obviously we have a massive audience and we do we can share that audience with other podcasts via yeah, recommendations I, I think we should that's a that's should. a very good idea so so which podcast would you like to recommend today well, they've only listened to the first two episodes, but it's it's promising. Um, and it's not technical either, but it's the Battersea Poltergeist, which is a BBC Radio 4 production. And it's about a guy who investigates a poltergeist that haunted a house in Battersea. I believe it was in the 60s or 70s. Um, and it follows a paranormal investigator as he tries to study this haunting and the family that were haunted by it but apparently is one of the greatest unsolved ghost related hauntings that occurred but it's very very good it's a good one for winter it's a kind of documentary it's a bbc documentary about this event it is. There's, so it's not like a fictional retelling of it no 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 the, well there is a dramatization in part okay so it's partly dramatized but it is all based on the investigation which led me to believe we should consider some dramatization as well in our podcast. I think that's a good thing about researching other podcasts because you can get ideas for your own. Yeah. So. I'd, I'd like to hear that. <laughs> so, so you're thinking we could, we could potentially reenact significant events in, in still history, history or, or in, yeah. you know, we could, we could replay events in technology where there's been, you know, like a, an incident. And yep. we could have an incident reenactment on the podcast. Yep. Like perhaps when Bill Gates shipped the first MS-DOS terminal, we could reenact that moment. Or when Steve Jobs... <laughs> I thought you were going to say microchips there. Yeah, yeah. Microchips and vaccines. Yeah. I mean, there's any number of historical lines of code written and we could... We could recreate those moments. We could. We could. Whiteboard planning sessions, dramatized. Yeah. We should maybe stick to podcast recommendations. That would be my podcast recommendation for the week. Okay. And what's it called again? The Battersea Poltergeist. It is fairly high up the, the charts now, like ourselves. You wouldn't struggle <laughs> to find it. I think it should probably be top 10 of most of your preferred podcast providers. So the next time I come with a podcast recommendation, I will I'll prepare my own jingle, I think. Great. And we'll make this a, a regular segment if you invite me back, Ryan. 
Very good. I, I, I realize this is off the cuff, Chris, but do you have a podcast recommendation to add to, to Matt's? Yeah, I do, actually. I've been listening to What You Will Learn a lot recently, if you've came across it. I have not. If you're familiar with Blinkist, where they do like 15, 30-minute summaries of books, it's basically two Australian guys who do the same thing. And they kind of cover everything. They're supposed to be quite influential or important books. Stuff I probably wouldn't read in my own time. But it's just, I'll just kind of listen to like the, the half-hour summaries. I've found it quite interesting. You know, it can, they kind of cover everything from like brief history of time to the art of war to books on like marketing and forming habits and um, strategy, like absolutely everything. You know, cool. it's, it's quite good. So does that mean now that you've got you've got a sufficient knowledge of all of these books to claim no. that you've read them? <laughs> no. No. But it, it's I've actually been using it to influence what I'm going to read next of it think something sounds quite you know it sounds interesting then i usually go and get it for the kindle and help but feel chris's podcast listens are slightly more cultured than my own after hearing that <laughs> well i yeah. yeah there's also the freakonomics podcast uh, freakonomics radio if anyone's read the book before um it's quite good too it's, it's it's along the same sort of line but i think it's only one of the guys can't remember which one yeah and it's just same sort of thing okay so let's let's move on to formal topics, as it were. I have a confession to make that I have, for about the past five years, been getting a daily email from the Northern Ireland Job Finder with jobs in development over a certain salary. Uh, and this one came up a couple of weeks ago. That's There's a company in Belfast who is hiring a productivity engineer. And I looked at it and thought, what is a productivity engineer? And it looks like the best job in the world ever to me, because it just looks like a job where you go in and you just try and make everybody's day better and tinker with things until they work. Yeah, I think looking at the job title, it looks slightly ominous when you think of, you know, productivity and measurement and software development. When you look at the actual job spec, it looks very promising in that it is essentially clearing the pathway for developers to, to be productive by setting up CI and CD and trying to look at ways of improving code quality. And it looks it looks like the job done right, but it very much leads to that conversation of avoiding measurement of developer individual productivity, which has obviously been a very taboo subject for a very, very long time. Yeah. And you two are obviously involved in the selling of Instill as a service-based company to to do developer work for people. So how do you handle those conversations when when people want to know how much value for money they're getting? Do people ask you to say, we'll deliver this many features or we'll deliver this many lines of code or that sort of thing? Do those sort of conversations happen? Never lines of code. Like, never had conversations on how much has been delivered. It's usually feature-based, now deliverable-based. We try and keep it at the healthy level, which I think is a team level. Like once you start looking at individual performance from outside of the team, it's a very dark, dark pathway, especially if you're looking at metrics like lines of code or number of commits or coverage is another one. Coverage. Yeah. There's a saying of you get what you measure. So if you're starting to try and measure lines of code, you'll get more lines of code because people see that as the benchmark for performance. I think for us as a, a company, it's it's about value to the customer and that's usually developing features and developing things that the customer can see and that their customers can in turn use and see. And the only real measurement we would use from a team level is usually team velocity. How quickly can we deliver and how can we monitor the volume of work that the team can get done? 
But yeah, once you start getting down into the weeds of individuals, I think it gets toxic very, very quickly. So try and avoid that at all costs. I actually have an example of the lines of code one you're talking about, Matt. Like a project I worked on years ago where it was mandated that everything got like 80, 90% coverage, which meant the vast majority of tests were absolutely useless. Team members were just writing tests that just ran executed branches but didn't actually assert anything just so they could get their coverage numbers up and the tests would be green and it wouldn't take them too long. I've seen similar on a, a fairly legacy software platform where Powermark was introduced to try and test the code that couldn't easily be tested and what you just ended up with was code that couldn't change because the tests were so invasive and so tied to the implementation that to actually change any of the code you then were changing all of the tests. Well, I mean, it was really well covered, really well covered. <laughs> so it met the spec. So, you know, everybody's happy. Yeah. Until your customer wants new features and you have to spend twice the amount of time because you're changing the tests, which no longer work. Yeah. In a world where, where we know that the customer is going to demand change as they do all the time, how do you measure quality in that scenario when the features that you're asked to deliver at the outset actually change on day one, whenever you sit down and actually talk about what those features are? What do we do in that situation? It's really the, it's how the, the system performs when it's deployed, you know, the defects coming in, customer satisfaction, um, those sort of metrics. Generally not hearing anything is good. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You know, I, I just, I'm thinking that it's interesting, you know, that the challenge that a lot of companies like maybe ours have where we're approached to deliver some some software and we do that and we do it really well, but it doesn't meet the customer need because actually they didn't know what they wanted whenever they came to us. So we, we go away happy because we built something good. You know, it's, there's a higher level question around productivity there where actually all of that work that we've actually delivered in that scenario is wrong. Yeah, that's where the metrics around team velocity are lost as well. Because team velocity has no correlation to value if you've delivered the wrong thing. I think that's where the product management piece comes in, is that trying to attain that deeper understanding of the customer or the end user, sorry, than what the customer might, might even have and constantly questioning what you're building. And Agile can compensate for that in ways as well, obviously, if we're doing frequent releases and trying to get software in front of users or prototypes to try and get that early feedback. But yeah, you can you can fixate on delivering things when, you know, if you question it, is it valuable? And if it's not, then you haven't really been productive. Yeah, it's a thing that that's sometimes on my mind around the training stuff that we do. The feedback we get is that it's very good. People who come on our courses tell us that they enjoyed it and tell us that they learned lots. But d did it make them better developers? Did it make them more effective in their jobs? Those are the questions around the quality of our work that we don't have an answer to because the only really way to figure that out is actually go and sit and talk to the developers in about six weeks' time when they're actually using the thing that we've trained them in and saying, well, did yeah. our training actually help you here? Yeah. Which is not something that we have access to. And I think that's the nice thing, just to give you a compliment, Ryan. It's the nice thing about our training is that we're not just focused on the literal content. We also will talk about other aspects of software development, like how to put things into practice, like clean code, like approaches to software development and software development methodologies. It's more about how to apply what you've learned um, and different techniques for applying it as well. So it's sort of behavioral change as well as content-based learning. And I think that's why I like that productivity engineer job, because almost it describes the sort of developers that we're trying to create, you know, the developers who think about how to be more effective, to use their tools better, to, to take advantage of the, 
the CICD stuff, that sort of stuff is is part of what we do. So it, yeah, it's, it, was, it was quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking when I read it that I don't think it ne- necessarily should be one person. You know, it feels like something that should be a responsibility of the whole team, you know, because the team are best placed to determine where they're least productive and then try and automate that. I think it's more important to try and build in capacity to yeah. spend time on this sort of thing, these sort of things. I think that's where you really win is when that's part of the culture as opposed to when that's somebody's job and that person can probably leave their job once it is the culture they've got no job left maybe that's the end goal it wasn't a fixed term contract though it was full time so have to kind of wonder is the organization you're going into not particularly good at these sorts of things you know the devops and ci cd side of things and that they need to bring someone in to specifically fix the issues yeah stripe have published a report that says that there's something like $3 trillion worth of money is wasted through lack of developer productivity and that companies and managers, rather than solving the problem of developer productivity, say, this is a headcount problem. I want to hire more developers. So there's a massive opportunity there for us to develop a product or something that that allows us to, to help development teams be more productive. And I know that we're uh, we're moving into that world uh, and instill where we want to be a product company that does help developers and builds great teams. You know, so I, I kind of wonder whether that fits with our mindset in terms of a problem that we're trying to solve in the world. Maybe not. Maybe it's a secret. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was a brilliant link. <laughs> he set that up perfectly and then no one took it. I wasn't sure if Chris wanted to talk about Dependeroo at that point or whether I should talk about Dependeroo. So is Dependeroo the answer to that problem? Yes, it is. Basically, it started out as an idea. You know, a few of us were working on a project a few years ago. We were using some tooling um, to automate some of the kind of mundane tasks we were doing every day. Um, and we'd like this is a project we're releasing like every one to two weeks, you know, so we're constantly keeping on top of dependencies and things like that. But it was just a pain to do those things manually. So, you know, initially it's kind of like a little side project. And then we had a few interns and a few people are kind of between projects working on it as well. And it's kind of, it's grown into something that we can potentially sell and something we've re- released a, a beta for in the Atlassian marketplace for Bitbucket Cloud. At the minute, we support scanning and updating dependencies for NPM, Gradle, and Maven. But the longer-term kind of idea is that we'll start to give customers insights into their code bases and code health, you know, specifically around third-party dependencies. You know, whether that's security vulnerabilities or the age of dependencies, you know, issues around builds, things like that, just kind of... It's pretty open at the minute. You know, we haven't actually nailed down what we're going to do, but, you know, in that kind of insight space. Say I had a, a, a stable website that I've deployed and then not touched for a year. Is Dependeroo the sort of product that would just maintain that so that it did develop cruft and brokenness so that the next time I went to it to make a change to it, Dependeroo could help me get it running again? Is that the sort of thing that it does? Yeah, that's the idea. So we like we all... We automate the, you know, keeping dependencies up to date with vulnerabilities, things like that. You know, and we do that by generating PRs, usually on like a daily basis. You know, I'll just go through the code base, scan all the depend, scan all the build files that are there and just issue PRs, you know, when we detect there's something 
something that needs to be updated. So then it's trivial just for me, the owner of that website, to go in and look at that pull request and go, that's good, approve, deploy, and then I've updated my code base and it's secure again. Yeah, so if you have CI hooked up to your code base, um, hooked up to your repository, and in the likes of Bitbucket, you can enable automated merging so when a build succeeds. So if you have that turned on, I think it's per pull request. I think you might be able to turn on at a repo level, and then you can just go in, click that switch, you know, as soon as the build passes, it'll just get automatically merged, and you don't have anything to do. If something fails, then you can go and manually inspect it. Of course, that means you've got good test coverage. Yeah. That's only the beginning as well. So there's plans to try and make this a much bigger product and a much better product from a functionality perspective as well. So we're doing things like talking about how we can report on dependencies. Because obviously now with where software is at, I would say the use of open source software is, is greater than ever. And there are dependencies to, or libraries that you can avail of to achieve pretty much anything. But obviously the more that you avail of said libraries or dependencies, the more upkeep that you have with them. But they also, the greater chance you have of inheriting vulnerabilities or issues. So we, we intend to start bringing in things like vulnerability alerts for dependencies. So to automatically notify you or your teams, if you have a project that is using a dependency that itself publishes a new vulnerability, also starting to analyze dependencies to see if they aren't maintained, or if you've introduced or one of your developers has introduced a dependency that looks like it's not that well maintained or isn't that popular. So if you bring in a dependency that's say got three stars in GitHub, maybe one contributor and it hasn't had a contribution for four years, you're pretty much inheriting technical debt from the off. So it's trying to raise that awareness of what is a healthy dependency, what isn't a healthy dependency, and bring it up to outside of the project and report on it higher up within an organization as well. So it's trying to almost bring in a, a level of compliance. It's not a nice word, but bring in a, a standardized level across an organization or across all your projects of what you expect from dependencies and what sort of levels of health you want to achieve from them. So that's all within the pipeline as well. And transitive dependencies are another big thing. You know, there was, was it left pad a few years ago? You know, there were so many node packages that were dependent on that. And it was taken, it was removed from the NPM registry and it just broke so many APIs and libraries and, you know, it caused a massive headache. One idea is being able to analyze things like that. So a transitive dependency, say, has a bunch of security vulnerabilities. That's a massive risk that, you know, we could alert end users to pretty quickly, you know, at no effort to themselves. Again, if you've ever worked in some legacy code bases, it, it's fairly frequent, like come the end of a release, you know, you're, you're going through and you're looking at all the dependencies, and you're looking at all the transitive dependencies, and you're building a big spreadsheet of um, open source licenses and you're going through and looking at bugs and things like that and i've done that in the past and it is horrible horrible yeah. to do where am i in breach of gdpr that sort of question yeah been able to be able to automate all those kind of mundane tasks you know i think it's really powerful and it's really useful to smaller teams as well who maybe don't have the capacity to do those sort of things 